We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to 1 Peter, and we are going to continue in our brand new study of this uh, letter that Peter wrote to the saints that were scattered all over the Roman provinces there in Asia Minor. And uh, just so you know, I thought we would get a little further this morning than we're going to get, but I confess I'm just kind of having a good time sizing up this letter and kind of meandering my way through it and getting my mind around it. And so um, I want to just use this morning uh, to continue to lay the groundwork for our study. We last week looked simply at one word, Peter, and we talked about who this man was behind this letter, and more importantly, who was the Lord behind this man who transformed him uh, over many years of walking with him and uh, how he came to the place where he could write such, a, such an amazing letter for us to benefit from. And so let's read the first couple of verses just to get them in our heads as we, uh, again, dive into this study. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Father, we come to you again and we thank you for this precious book that we hold in our hands. Thank you for inspiring it by your spirit and preserving it for us by your spirit. And now we know it's that same spirit that illuminates our minds to understand your word and to make application of it in our lives and to use your word to accomplish your work in our lives, sanctifying us, perhaps saving others this morning. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to your word. We ask that whatever we see here today, whatever we learn today, that we would be quick to put into practice and to obey. And we pray all this for your glory and our greater growth in Christ. Amen. Well, I assume that all of you have heard of the Pilgrim's Progress, written by the English Puritan preacher John Bunyan. I've got several copies. This is my favorite one. This is the big daddy of them all right here. Uh, This is something I just have in my office, and it's uh, not only the text, but also um, uh, got pictures um, that are fun to look at and just to imagine helps with the imagery of this classic work, but next to the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress is the most widely circulated book in history, and it's never been out of print since it was first published back in the late 1600s, which is unheard of when it comes to literature. This classic allegory of the Christian life vividly portrays the difficult and dangerous journey of a man named Christian as he travels from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And for those of you that have read it, by the way, how many of you have read it? Just curious to see. Good. Good for you. Um, You may remember then how Bunyan masterfully illustrates the myriad of temptations and, and trials that every believer experiences during their pilgrimage through this world on their way to heaven. The burden on his back. Remember that? That fell off when he came to the hill called Calvary. The interpreter's house. The slew of despond. Doubting castle. Giant despair. His companion hopeful. Vanity fair. These are just a few of the most memorable images and characters and and places in this story. And I think the reason why the Pilgrim's Progress has stood the test of time and is 
beloved by believers and cherished alongside their Bibles is it's beautifully and, and powerfully depicts one of the most foundational and practical principles in God's Word. And that is that this world is not our home. We are aliens, strangers, sojourners, exiles in a foreign land who are simply passing through this life to our eternal home. And honestly, I don't know that I ever thought about this as much as I did this week, but from the beginning, when God set his people apart from the rest of the world, he intended for them to live as aliens. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to this string of verses from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. This is the Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. In other words, God's people started with him telling him, Abraham to leave his native land and go to a foreign land where he would sojourn. Genesis 15, 13, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Genesis 23, verse 4 Abraham said to the Hittites when Sarah died, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He didn't even have a place to bury his wife. When God was giving the nation of Israel the law in Leviticus 19 verse 33, he said this, when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 25, 23, the land shall not be sold permanently. This is the laws about real estate. He said, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. First Chronicles 29, verse 15, these are the words of David thanking God for the temple uh, or the, the offering that was donated to build the temple. And he said this, for we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers are, were, our days on the earth are like a shadow. And then David again in Psalm 39, verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. And so that is how the nation of Israel is described in the Old Testament, as strangers, as sojourners, as aliens. Now this Old Testament pilgrimage imagery was reiterated in the New Testament, by the writer of Hebrews who applied this principle to Christians. You're probably familiar with the, the hall of faith as we call it in Hebrews chapter 11 as he was recounting uh, all the, the Abrahamic or, or all the patriarchs, all the godly people that had come uh, really at the, at the beginning of the, the nation of Israel. And then he culminates with Abraham here. He says in Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, he goes on a few verses later. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then the book of Hebrews climaxes in Hebrews 13 verse 14, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Again, I believe these are the verses that probably 
were in John Bunyan's mind when he was in prison for preaching unlawfully in England that led him to come up with this or craft this allegory of the Christian life, painting us as Christians as aliens and strangers. Now, nowhere is this principle of pilgrimage stated more explicitly and applied more directly to Christians than here in 1 Peter. Notice here in the very first verse, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as what? Aliens or perhaps exiles, your translation says. And then look at chapter 2, verse 11, beloved, I urge you as what? Aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That verse is reminiscent of of, um, John Bunyan's lesser known allegory, the Holy War. Who's heard of the Holy War? Uh, It's it's uh, another book he wrote which depicts the spiritual warfare that Christians face, again, through another creative story or allegory about the town of Mansoul, which is besieged by the host of the devil and is rescued by the army of Emmanuel, of course, referencing Christ, and is later undermined by further diabolic attacks and plots against Emmanuel's rule. So again, uh, the, the Christian fighting against besetting sin and the attacks of Satan. And later in this letter, Peter mentioned this spiritual warfare with an unforgettable analogy of his own, uh, depicting Satan as a lurking lion. Remember chapter 5, verse 8? Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We need to get used to hearing those words, suffer and suffering, because they're repeated more in this letter than any other words some 15 times, which has led the majority of commentators to conclude that the theme of this letter is simply standing firm in the midst of suffering. In fact, verse 12 says, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is truly the grace of God, and here is the final phrase, stand firm in it. Well, obviously, suffering in light of how many times it's mentioned in this letter, was never far from Peter's mind while he dictated this letter to Silvanus from Rome. And notice verse 13, if you're still there in chapter 5, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. It's highly unlikely that Peter was actually in literal Babylon, along with two other faithful brothers and and co-laborers, Silvanus, and uh, his son in the faith, Mark, Um, what Timothy was to Paul, Mark was to Peter. This was his disciple, who some say um, wrote down Peter's remembrances and experiences in the Gospel of Mark. Where did Mark get his material? right, for his gospel. It was likely through his relationship and discipleship with Mark, or excuse me, with Peter. But Babylon, I think, is probably best understood as a code word for Rome. And perhaps because of the persecution that was increasing there in Rome, uh, Peter didn't want this letter to be traced back there because it may have negative effects on the believers there in Rome. But this letter was likely written somewhere around A.D. 64, 65, either just before or shortly after the great fire of Rome, which destroyed two-thirds of the city. And you may recall that the godless 
maniac named Nero was the emperor at the time, and some blamed him for starting the fire so he could uh, rebuild Rome to his liking. Well, there's really no evidence that Nero started the fire or played the fiddle while Rome burned, right? We hear that often. But what we do know is that he pinned the blame on the Christians living in Rome. Since he viewed them as enemies of Rome because they refused to worship anyone but Christ. And so he started the rumor that it was the Christians that had started the fire in Rome. Which instigated an initial wave of Roman persecution against Christians, which eventually resulted in the execution of both Peter and Paul just a few years later, somewhere in 80, 68, 67, 68. And again, you may remember how Nero doused Christians with pitch and lit them on fire to illuminate his garden parties. Sort of like human tiki torches. He also had Christians sewn into the skins of dead animals and then dragged them into the Colosseum where people could watch them be eaten alive by wild beasts. This is the kind of stuff that was about to happen or was happening at the time that Peter wrote this. And so Peter likely witnessed some of these things, and he knew it was only a matter of time before the persecution intensified and spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. So he wrote this letter to prepare Christians for the coming storm of suffering so they wouldn't be caught off guard, and then to provide them the instruction they would need to navigate as aliens and strangers in an increasingly hostile world. I mentioned last week that First Peter has been likened to a, a traveler's guide for pilgrims. And so as I was thinking about the perfect title for our study, I decided to go with a pocket guide for pilgrims. A pocket guide for pilgrims. And you might be familiar with the pocket guide uh, word or, or, or term. It's, it's a concise manual or reference book providing specific information or instruction about a subject or place. For example, when you go traveling, you can purchase a pocket guide that tells you everything you need to know how to, to, to navigate a particular city, right? You kind of keep it in your back pocket and you kind of pull it out and go, oh, there's the Eiffel Tower. And then how do I get over here to this thing? And how do I get to the Louvre? And right, wherever you need to go, you pull out this pocket guide and it directs you where to go. And so in just five chapters and 105 verses, Peter summarized everything that we as Christians need to know as we journey through this world as foreigners on our way home to heaven. And I think his main goal was to provide us with an eternal perspective on suffering in order to give us hope and to help us stand firm and to stay faithful to Christ in the midst of persecution that is bound to come as a result of our commitment to him. But what might be missed, without looking a little closer at this theme, or the themes, if you will, of this book, is that he also exhorted these suffering saints to do more than just hunker down, or to huddle up, or to hang on for dear life or to hide until they get to heaven, right? Till Jesus comes or, or calls them home. What he actually does here, and it's very subtle, but once you see, see it, you can't ever miss it again. He presented a strategy for how exiles can evangelize the lost and went over a watching world that is growing more and more hostile to, hostile to the gospel by living holy lives and behaving in a way that convicts unbelievers and leads them to Christ. I tried to pack all that into the subtitle. <laughs> How to live holy, hope-filled lives in a hostile world that is not our home. In fact, if I had more space, I would have added this. How to live holy, hope-filled lives that win over others 
in a hostile world that is not our home. This, this winsomeness is, a, is a, I think, a key theme and, and, and often missed theme uh, in this letter. And I want to show you how I came up with this title and subtitle. It's based on, on the verses. I just didn't sit there and go, hmm, what should I call this thing? Um, but it, 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 as I was reading through the book of 1 Peter, there were certain verses that just made this very clear to me. For example, chapter 1, verse 1, to those who reside as aliens. Look at the hope. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's great hope. It's as if Peter took his hand and put it under our chin and, and pushed our face away from our present circumstances and pushed them to heaven. And said, don't forget about where you're going. This is not your home. It's not always going to be this way. Look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope, there it is again, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Verse 17, if you... Address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, don't go hide your bushel, right? Your light under a bushel somewhere. Don't go hide it, run off into some cave because you're scared of what's happening in the world. You're to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, verse 11, beloved, I urge you, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Now watch this in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean? That they get saved. It's like it says in Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, they will come to understand that what you believe is true, that God is real, Christianity is true. He goes on in verse 3 and applies the same principle to wives living with husbands, most likely who are unbelievers. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be, here it is, what? One without a word, by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. It's the Greek word anastrophe, behavior. It's used a number of times here in chapter 2 and chapter 3. That our witness hinges on our behavior. And then notice again the evangelistic, or some would like it maybe better said, the apologetic emphasis of this letter. 
verse 15. This is chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good, what? Behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And then look at chapter 4. Verse 1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he has suffered in the flesh Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of the flesh, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But notice the gospel, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And then look at Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. And then again, chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Now, I don't want to assume that you're all familiar with those texts that we just read. Because they really uh, form the... the, um, the, the, I think the most important principles they, they, uh, of this letter. And, and I hope you can see just by maybe, maybe that, that's the first time you ever read those verses. Some of you, you've read those verses hundreds of times already in your Christian life. But whether you are reading this for the first time or studying it for the umpteenth time, I hope you see how relevant and practical this letter is. I, mean, I think it's as relevant as it was when Peter wrote it some 2,000 years ago. And I think the better that we learn and apply the principles that Peter taught in this book, the better prepared we will be to face the gathering storm of opposition and oppression that will inevitably come against Christians in the church in our day. I'm sure you've noticed, as I have, the dark clouds forming in our own country over the past couple of years, the convergence of a number of major crises, the pandemic, the George Floyd case, a contested presidential election, political polarization, just to name a few, I think has exposed an escalating antagonism towards Christians and the church. Have you seen it? Have you felt it? Now in some ways this is new to us. But those of us who live in the West, like what I mean by that is Europe, countries in Europe, Canada, United States, We're used to praying for who? The persecuted church who live in other parts of the world, typically communist or Muslim-controlled countries. That are hostile to Christ or hostile to the gospel. And uh, these Christians in these countries, they've grown accustomed to being misunderstood and mistreated for what they believe and how they live. It's just a way of life for them. It's a daily thing. But we, on the other hand, 
have had a strong Judeo-Christian heritage, and so we're not used to being persecuted for our Christian beliefs and practices, because it's kind of been just weaved into who we are as a nation for many, many years. But now we're beginning to experience what I would submit to you as an initial wave of persecution as Christians are being sued for not baking cakes or making websites for same-sex marriages. Churches are being forced to close or to limit the size of their gatherings and told they can't sing. Pastors are having their sermons subpoenaed. That happened right here in downtown Houston, right in our back door, if you will. Or pastors being arrested for keeping their churches open during the pandemic or for preaching against the sin of homosexuality. It's actually happening in Europe and in Canada where there have been pastors who have been arrested for just simply preaching what the Bible says about same-sex marriage. And so I think you would agree with me that our country is growing less and less friendly towards Christians. Our values and standards are fast becoming countercultural. And there are those who would, would like to cancel Christianity along with everything else they've already canceled. And so we should expect to be misunderstood, misrepresented, maligned, mistreated, or maybe just minimized. And none of this should surprise us. Since I think our country is in the final stages of being given over by God for rebelling against Him and rejecting His Word. We've looked at Romans 1 on a number of occasions. How because people have rejected the knowledge of God and continued in their sin and suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness that the wrath of God is coming. And what does the wrath of God look like practically? In a life, in a nation, or the life of a nation, God gives them over, first of all, to what? Immorality. Secondly, he gives them over to what? Homosexuality. And then thirdly, he gives them over to insanity. Where things make absolutely no sense at all. We've all heard of the greatest generation. We may be part of the saddest generation where the unthinkable has not only become acceptable but unquestionable. Things that used to be unthinkable, now you can't even argue about. They're true. They have to be true. That a he is a she even though he's a he, but you caught a call him a she or a her. That's crazy. It's insanity. It makes absolutely no sense. But now it's, again, not just tolerable. It's not just acceptable. It's unquestionable. When we were in Washington this summer, we went to a baseball game. It seemed like an innocent enough event to take the family to a baseball game, and we went to the concession stand to get something to eat, and this pretty gal waited on us, and when I ordered, she spoke to me in a man's voice, and I was like, okay, apparently this is not a girl, but she addressed her, he addressed himself up so well that I didn't even recognize that it was a guy until I noticed the Adam's apple that was very prominent. <laughs> and I thought, oh, hi. Um, yeah, I'll have a hot dog and some chips. And <laughs> it was just, a, again, that's just become, it's, that, it, it, we don't see that as much here in a more conservative part of the country. But in other places that we read about and watch in the news, right, this is in your face everywhere. We actually went to 
the area in Seattle, which is known as the homosexual headquarters, where the chop was, the chaz, right? Where they kind of shut everything down, barricaded it all, took it over. And uh, all the, all the um, crosswalks were painted rainbow everywhere you went. And uh, it just was crazy to, to think about it and actually be there where we would watch all this stuff go down on the news. All that to say that given to the trajectory of our nation, this is not going to bode well for those of us who seek to honor God and seek to obey his word. So how should we respond to these ominous things that appear to be lying ahead for us in the church? I think there are some that would react like, for a lack of a better term, spiritual preppers who out of fear go into hiding and they isolate themselves from the world. But that's not what we see here in the book of Peter, First Peter. Peter says we need to engage our culture and take advantage of this incredible opportunity to share with others the hope that we have in Christ and show the difference that he makes in a person's life by the way we live our lives, by the way we behave. A holy life is a, is a radically, that, that is radically different from everyone else in the world is one of the most powerful apologetics that God is real and Christianity is true. Your life, your lifestyle is a powerful apologetic that God is real and that Christianity is true. And so 1 Peter teaches us how to be, how to be winsome wanderers who stand out in the world and whose Christ-like behavior is noticed by unbelievers who don't understand us, they don't agree with us, but as a result of how we think and talk and act and respond, they're either silenced, they're shamed, or they're saved. So Peter wants us to know that we are aliens in a foreign land, but he also wants us to remember that we are ambassadors in a foreign land. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Peter was clearly concerned that his readers understood the privilege and responsibility they had as Christ's ambassadors. Which, by the way, makes being an alien a lot more exciting. Peter knew of what he spoke. Again, this letter is really the fruit of his own life, if you will. The result of all that God... or in Christ did in him, through him. We never really talked about this last week, but it says here at the beginning, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That, that word apostle literally means a sent one. And it refers to someone who had been chosen and commissioned by Christ to serve as a messenger of Christ. Jesus used the term to describe his disciples. They were apostles, Luke six thirteen. The criteria for filling the vacancy by, left by Judas when he uh, committed suicide was that the man who would take his place had to have been with Jesus from the start of his ministry to his ascension. We see that in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary that the, of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and out, in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, they had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. I think it's also important to note that God gave the apostles supernatural powers 
to perform miracles in order to authenticate them as true messengers of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul talks about the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. He was talking about his ministry in the city of Corinth, that God had given him the, the ability to do these miracles and perform these signs and wonders to authenticate him as a true apostle. In other words, listen to this guy. He, he's speaking on my behalf. In Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the writer talks about how God testified with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Talking about the apostles. And so the apostles played a foundational role in the early church. Remember when the church gathered together uh, in Jerusalem, after 3,000 of them got saved, they devoted themselves first and foremost to what? Who's teaching? The apostles' teaching. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, having been built on the foundation, the church, God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then, of course, you remember Ephesians 4, 11, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. I think that is a progression there, that the, the apostles and the prophets served a foundational role in the life of the church, and then came the evangelists, and now we have the pastors and teachers. In other words, once the foundation of the church was laid and God's word was completed, they passed off the scene. The apostles passed off the scene because they were no longer necessary. And so I say all that because I wouldn't want any of you to think of yourself as an apostle because there are some running around in charismatic circles today that feel like they have been given the gift of an apostle. That is their role uh, in the church, some even in good, like-minded evangelical churches take that title upon themselves but emphasize that it's a small A. It's a small A apostle. It's not like the 12 apostles. It's a small A apostle, which I think is just confusing. I think that term is reserved for the original 12 apostles But nevertheless, even though no apostles, no apostles exist today, every follower of Christ is called to represent him like Peter did with their lips and with their lives. And so we can be apostle-like without having to be an apostle, without claiming that title. And so as we continue to meander here, we're meandering this morning, aren't we? just kind of meandering through, getting our mind around this book and making sure we just have a, a, a lot of this background information that I think is so important. But let's look a little further into our text at the salutation or the introduction of this letter. And Paul began, or excuse me, Peter began this letter just like Paul began his letters, like most of the other writers of the general epistles. The general epistles are uh, distinct from the Pauline epistles, right? Some, you know, Paul wrote 13 letters and the rest were written by other guys. Um, they're called general epistles. But they all followed the, st- the, the standard format used in first century correspondence. The author would introduce himself, then he would identify the addressees, and then he would impart a brief blessing. And so check out here how Peter identifies the recipients of this letter. He's already introduced himself and spends very little time, one little phrase on himself, but then focuses on his his readers. But notice the first word in the Greek text, and you may not get this if you got an NAS like I do, is eklektois, which sounds like what word in the English? Elect. The NIV has it. Uh, I think the ESV has it that way. Typically, the New American Standard follows the exact word order in the Greek very closely. But in this case, I think the translators likely made a theological decision to connect election with foreknowledge in verse 2. 
And so they translate it a little differently. But unfortunately, I think you, 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 um, you miss out on a bit of the shock value in that when Peter put pen to parchment in order to encourage and strengthen these suffering saints, the first word that the Holy Spirit brought to his mind, ready for this, was what? Elect. He called him out as God's elect. Now, so for some Christians and, 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 and in some churches, just to mention the word elect is like pulling a pin on a grenade. And everybody starts to scatter, right? Creates all kind of commotion and confusion and conflict. And I would just say how instructive it is for us to consider that Peter began this letter by referencing one of the most controversial and hated doctrines in the history of Christianity, but he simply states it in a seemingly nonchalant, matter-of-fact way with no apology, no explanation, which indicates to me that it was a familiar truth that was accepted and appreciated not just by Peter and the rest of the apostles, but also by all the believers who would read this letter. This wasn't going to come as a shock to them. Like, what? I'm not reading this. That's stupid. I don't understand that. So they throw the letter in the trash. No, I don't think so. The other thing I want to suggest here is that the fact that Peter started off by mentioning the word elect should tell us that this this doctrine of election that has caused endless debates and disputes down through the ages was never intended to confuse but to comfort, to comfort. Now granted, the doctrine of election is difficult to understand and perhaps even more difficult to embrace, but God never expected us to reject it, but to rejoice in it. And literally, Peter addressed them as elect exiles. Those are the two words that are side by side in the the Greek text, and again, the ESV nails it there. I think it actually says, elect exiles. So notice it says, to those who reside as aliens or exiles or elect exiles. Again, that word alien there is, or exile is a word for sojourner. It describes someone living in a foreign land, a, a temporary resident, not a permanent settler. In other words, we're just passing through this world. Heaven is our real home. Our legal passport may say that we're an American citizen, but our spiritual passport says that we're a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In other words, if we're not really earthlings, then we shouldn't hold too tightly to earthly things or get too tangled in the affairs of this earth. Wouldn't you agree? The challenge, though, is that our sojourn here on earth is not just for a few days or even a few months. Like we just go on a little trip and we rent a hotel for a couple nights, you know, and then come back home. No, this this lasts our entire lives. We're born in this world, and we grow up in this world, and we go to school in this world, and we get jobs in this world, and we get married in this world, and we raise kids in this world, and we buy houses in this world, and we prepare for the future as best we can, all the time knowing that this is not our home. And so while we're in the world, according to Jesus, we are not what? of the world, John 17, 16. And Jesus said, that's why the world hates us. 
Unbelievers think we're strange because we don't think like they think or talk like they talk or act like they talk. That's what Peter said in verse Chapter 4, verse 4, they're, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. They don't get it. Why? Because we're foreigners. We're not natives. We're outsiders who at times are treated like outcasts. Or said in a southern colloquialism that I learned when I first moved to Texas, we're the redheaded stepchildren of the world. We're the ones who are neglected and mistreated and unwanted. We don't enjoy the same kinds of things as the world. We don't go to the same events. We don't laugh at the same jokes. We don't watch the same movies. We, we shouldn't feel like we fit in or belong since we shouldn't have a whole lot, of comps, a whole lot in common with worldly people. Hey, have you ever been somewhere doing something? You were invited to some place. Maybe it was the, the work Christmas party, you know, and, and you just the whole time you're there going, man, I just, I just don't even belong here. And you went because you wanted to be a good witness for Christ and leverage your relationships, right, with your unsaved coworkers. But the whole time you're thinking, you know, man, I just feel like, a, you know, uh, that I don't fit. I'm sticking out like a sore thumb here. I, I've, got, I've got nothing in common with these people, at least that matters. What I care most about, they don't care most about. That's, by the way, why Paul said, don't be unequally yoked. Well, what does a Christian and a non-Christian have in common? Not much especially not the most important thing, which is supposed to be the center of your marriage, which is Christ, amen? You know, I was thinking the other day, a good test of how worldly we are is just scrolling through Netflix or Amazon Prime Video. And, and as you're going through looking for something to watch, right, you either are saving a ton of movies to your watch list or you are having a hard time finding anything to watch, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. It's, why? Because the vast majority of movies that are available today contain content that's inappropriate for Christians. And I would say this. If you fit right in with the world and you find yourself having a whole lot of in common with worldly people and you love the things of the world, then maybe it's because you are of this world. You're not one of those that God has sovereignly plucked out of this world. One of the most obvious marks of an unbeliever is what the Bible describes as worldliness. In other words, if you don't feel out of place in this world and your life is consumed with worldly thoughts and worldly words and worldly desires, it may mean that you're not truly saved. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. James used maybe even stronger words in James 4 verse 4, you adulteresses. Writing to professing Christians, by the way. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So these are challenging, challenging thoughts here. Notice just quickly as we wrap up for today. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That word scattered there is the word diaspora, which was a word used two other times in the New Testament as a technical term referring to Jews living outside of Palestine. James 1.1 might be the most familiar uh, to you. Both times it has an article the dispersion, 
But the fact that Peter didn't include that article here, I think indicates that he was using this as a general term for both Jewish and Gentile believers who are scattered all over Asia Minor. And so he listed five provinces located in the, in the northeast region of the Roman Empire. This is modern-day Turkey, by the way, if you want to get your uh, geographical bearings. And I find it interesting that in Acts chapter 2, verse 9, Luke recorded that there were people from some of these provinces in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost who heard the gospel proclaimed in their native language by the disciples who were speaking in tongues. Remember that? Which were literal languages having been filled and empowered by the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so surely some of these people repented of their sins. They placed their faith in Christ and they went home and shared the gospel with their family and their friends and churches were established in all these provinces. So while Paul's letters addressed specific churches or individuals, Peter was writing to thousands of believers and hundreds of churches who were spread over thousands of square miles. And this was likely intended to be a circular letter that Silvanus, after he uh, penned it with, uh, under the a direction of Peter would deliver this kind of and pass it around in these five provinces. I think it's interesting that the word diaspora, the word spora, means sown as seed. And I think the implication here is that God sovereignly scattered these suffering saints like seeds all over the Roman Empire to serve as salt and light to these people who lived, the unbelievers who lived in these provinces. Matthew 5, 13, right? Talking about where to be salt and light. That was Jesus' intent. And so Peter wanted to make sure that his readers saw themselves as part of God's plan for world evangelization. He told them how to be good witnesses to their persecutors in particular. And so I ask you this morning, do you see yourself as part of God's plan for world evangelization? Do you see yourself as a seed that has been strewn throughout Montgomery County and Harris County, wherever you might live, Grimes County, right? We're all like seeds that have been sovereignly scattered by God and we've landed in different neighborhoods and subdivisions and locations. Why? Because we have a job to do. We have the opportunity to share the gospel with those living in our sphere of influence. And so even though as Christians we are at odds with the culture, we shouldn't just abandon the culture and say, well, to hell in a handbasket, right, goes, the earth, goes our country. Just let the, let the world go. To hell in a handbasket. That's how some Christians sadly respond to all that they're seeing happening in our culture, in our, in our country. Rather, we should engage the culture and again and serve as agents of change in this world by sharing the gospel with others, but also showing them what a life transformed by Jesus looks like, so they'll want to have Jesus do the same thing in their life. You should, I'm sure you've heard it said before that God could have very easily decided to take us to heaven the moment we got saved. Some would be like, yeah, that would have been a way easier deal, way better deal in my, my perspective, right? Wouldn't have to deal with all the sin and temptation and the sanctification process and the trials and the temptations, all that kind of stuff. Why did he leave us here? He left us here on this earth is to serve as alien ambassadors, Exile evangelists and to witness while we wander. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that we have to learn from this book, all that you have preserved here for us. Lord, there's, there's just way more for, than, than we can possibly get our minds around in the time that we have here on Sunday mornings, but I just pray, Lord, as we continue to study this book together, it would revolutionize the way we think, especially in light of what we see happening in our country and the escalation of 
opposition and oppression of the truth, which all goes back to your word. And as those who, who love your word and who seek to live according to your word, uh, this is going to create some problems for us in the future. And I pray that you'd use this study to prep us. Not to run and hide, but Lord, to run headlong into the culture and be a, a bright light for Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.